0: Welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching, learning, community, conversation, and your digital life, made for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast into Kumloops Te Sekwepum within the unceded traditional lands of Sekwepum Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And this week, I'm thinking a lot about the difference between access and accommodation. But let's get into it. So before we start, I want to say that my thinking today is informed by lots of people, but most recently, maybe like the easiest threads to link my thinking back to um, would be Ben Mitchell's TPC talk last week about um, accommodations and accessibility, particularly for neurodivergent students. And an article I was reading this morning in the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics called Universal Design in Apocalypse Time, A Short History of Accessible Teaching Exnovation by Sarah Madoka-Curry, and I'll link that in the show notes. In both cases, these thinkers are giving me a reason to think a little bit more, a little bit more critically, maybe just to think a little differently about how accessibility and accommodation function. The broad brushstrokes difference between the two ideas: a- a- accommodations are things that we do to our course in order to allow specific learners to have needs met. So it might be, you know, you, you've all seen the letters you get from accessibility services. It might be extra time on an exam. It might be the ability to type instead of handwrite an exam. Whatever it is, it's it's an accommodation when it's granted to one or a small handful of students within the course, but everybody else is doing the sort of like, quote unquote, mainstream assessment. Accessibility is a lot broader. Accessibility is like trying to anticipate the potential needs of our learners and meet them without having to give special accommodations to individual students and without those individual students having to request it. It's trying to imagine like, where are the barriers to learning in my class and how can I manage those ahead of time? How can I think about access at the course design stage? So it might be that you don't have timed exams at all. So individual students who require additional time on the exam don't need to be accommodated in your class because that's not a particular issue of your course. That's in broad brushstroke kind of the difference between accommodation and accessibility. We tend to think of them in the same breath often, but they're actually really, really different. And the main difference I think is that the university, and I don't mean our university, I mean like the university has a structure. The university is really good at accommodation because that's like a legal framework. And I I can already hear friends arguing with me about like the really good at accommodation part. I I totally get it. Accommodations are often difficult to access for students. There's all kinds of problems around like the requirements for documentation. But I guess what I mean by like really good is that there's an existing framework and a process for accommodation. We often talk about the institution being accessible when what we mean is that the institution grants accommodations. The problem with an accommodation framework, whether it's for disability, whether it's for remote learners, whether it's for well, any kind of reason that students might have exceptionalities or atypicalities that create different needs for them in the classroom, the accommodation model, A, requires students to self-identify to the institution, but it also requires documentation. And documentation can be really, really, really expensive, especially in the case of like a learning disability or neurodivergence that isn't diagnosed in childhood. Getting that diagnosis in adulthood can be really, really expensive. And then there's also like familial and cultural reasons why someone might not have had access to that kind of care or might not want to access that kind of care now. The problem with accommodations is that like they're by definition exclusive <laughs> to students who know how to access them, right? And they don't necessarily cover all the kinds of needs that we might see. Accessibility is something different, broader, larger. It's more like an ethos, more like a way of approaching your course content from the perspective of wanting the most number of people to have the best possible experience. I get uncomfortable sometimes when I hear conversations about accessibility that seem to place, like, accessibility up against rigor or difficulty. I don't think... Well i don't I don't really care about like rigor as a concept <laughs> to start out with. but I also don't think there's any reason to believe that a place where everyone feels a sense of belonging and can access the materials, like I don't think that those things get in the way of whatever notion of rigor that you hold unless the idea of rigor is just that fewer people can access it, right? So, like, it's not a sign of rigor if course materials are not in an accessible format or can't be read by a screen reader, right? Like that's not rigor. That's just exclusion. I guess the reason why I'm thinking about this is because I want us all to think more about accessibility and less about accommodation, which isn't to say that I don't want students who need accommodations to have them granted. Like, of course I do. And as we work towards a more accessible institution, that's going to happen faster, slower, with greater and lesser sense of willing in different areas of the institution, I'm not arguing for the dismantling of the accommodation system. Though I would read a persuasive argument about it, what I am suggesting is that if you've sort of thought about access beginning and ending with the act of accommodation, I'm sort of warmly inviting you to think a little bit broader about what it means to allow accessibility for your course to your learners. This summer we're putting together a suite of programming about inclusive digital design. There's a great new podcast just starting up called Accessagogy, which I'll link to in the show notes. There's lots of places to go to start to find out how we can all just do like a little bit better on the accessibility piece. But you know, we're 3 years into a pandemic. I know that's not a popular thing to bring up, but it continues to be true regardless of everything else. And we're three years into like a mass disabling event. The ramifications of long COVID and just the ramifications of COVID infection and multiple COVID infections, like these are things that we don't understand yet, but we're already starting to see their effects in our learners and in our colleagues and in ourselves. And I think this is a moment where we can get ahead of the game. Well, we're probably already behind, but you know, we can we can be proactive and we can think about building the most accessible course possible rather than waiting to make a necessary accommodation. As we think about learners, I've invited a learning strategist on the show today. Emilio Porco is working in academic integrity. This is a role that I think is really, really important. And Emilio has some interesting things to say about the state of academic integrity at TRU and and how we can all build that sense of community together. I'll let Emilio take it from here. So I am here today with Emilio Porco. Emilio, would you tell folks what you do at TRU and where they might find you if they were to go looking for you?
1: Sure. So before I start, whenever I speak, I always like to give a territorial acknowledgement and recognize that I am a guest on the unceded land of the Tequemloops Tesequemec, and I am very grateful to share this land as a guest. My parents were immigrant settlers. With regard to who I am, I am the Learning Strategist for Academic Integrity. Yes, you can go to sleep now, students. If you have, let's hope that this doesn't happen, but hypothetical situation if it does, and you have an allegation filed against you for one of the four forms of academic dishonesty, I guide you through the process and provide you with... uh, Uh, Resources related to the policy and the process, and will convey some information that is not explicit in the process or the policy.
0: Yeah, I think this is so necessary because it's often a very emotional experience for students when they uh, face an accusation of academic dishonesty. You know, it's all wrapped up in the expectations they have of themselves, family expectations, right? Like there's so many layers of yeah, there's just so many layers to process through. So, so you're the first point of call, right? Like if a student is facing that, you're the first person they go
1: to. Normally what happens is they'll receive an email and their instructor will either send them the case report form and then outline the allegation in that email or sometimes if they're on campus, a, an instructor might ask a student to come in and discuss you know, why they are in this situation. So once they're given a case, it's the student's responsibility to reach out to me because oftentimes instructors don't CC our office. So I don't know when cases are being uh, initiated. If a student does take that opportunity to reach out, that's when I will send them an infographic about the process. And the process essentially is kind of like a tennis match. There's a bit of back and forth because the form goes from the instructor to the student and back to the instructor. Then the instructor forwards it to the department chair chair or the manager of program delivery if it's open learning. And then from there, it goes to the dean and then to the director of program delivery if it's open learning. And then it comes to our office. And then once it comes to our office, we stamp the form and then we redact the form. And then we send it back to the student for them to review, make sure everything's okay, because the academic integrity committee does not know any information about who the student is. So all that is kept confidential. And then the adjudication commences and to your point they are very emotional when when they get the form and yeah the language is rather, I don't want to say cold, but I mean, the language in the policy and the process is very black and white, and it almost seems judicial in many ways. So that's what freaks them out. And I often will de-escalate and just say, you know, it's, it's, it's not as bad as you think, and I'll just let them know that I, at the end of the day, if it's your first allegation, it's more of a learning experience than anything. A typical sanction for a first offense, I'll tell students, is if the AIC upholds the allegation, it's normally a zero. But depending on that weight of the assignment, it may not affect your grade very much. And so a first allegation rarely results in a fail. However, there are accentuating circumstances. So for example, if your average is somewhat low in the course and you receive a zero on an assignment where the weight is maybe, I don't know, 15%, yeah. 20%, then there could be you know some issues. I am, um, you know, you use the word judicial, like when students read
0: that it's often, I mean even just the language we use right like an allegation of academic dishonesty and the case number like all these kinds of things right they do like it sounds really sort of legal criminal and and I and sanction right all this language and so I often think I'm glad your role exists I guess is where I'll start because I'm glad there's a person who students can connect with so that they can have the process clarified because I mean I read policy all the time and I find it an alienating form of prose, right? And that's policies that don't necessarily like affect me so much. So I wonder if you have a sense of what percentage of students who are in the academic integrity system do have the ability to connect with you or do make the decision, I guess, more to the point, to connect with you and to get some guidance through the process.
1: Are you talking like the ratio of students that reach out to me compared to the number of students that actually get cases from Yeah, filed? yeah. Oh, gosh.
0: Sorry, I'm just curious, really.
1: I would be willing to, just off the top of my head, I would venture to guess less than 50% reach out to me. And oftentimes, a student will get their case report form, and they're given two opportunities to add comments. And basically, I always tell them that, you know, just be honest, and whether you agree or disagree with the allegation and the evidence is there in front of you. I don't coach them in what to say. That's not my responsibility. I just sometimes they won't sign the form or they won't add comments. And students don't understand that even if you don't sign the form after seven days, it still gets processed. Yeah. And oftentimes they'll get their adjudication letter and we still won't hear from them. So they're just like, yeah. And I'm only again, this is an assumption. I'm assuming they Well, Let's see if I can pull a fast one here. And then they get caught. Well, I guess I got caught.
0: You may not want to engage further with that
1: process. No, I I, I don't. And again, I don't infer or anything like that. But back to student comments. So the ones that do uh, add student comments, oftentimes they are candid with regard to either their lack of understanding with regard to what plagiarism really is. They admit that they're still learning and they don't quite have the skill set. Or they make comments that they're, you know, just having a hard time. When I read them, whenever I see comments related to anything that has to do with their social or emotional well-being, I always say, let's just not, let's forget about academic integrity right now. Your well-being is paramount. So, I will then let them know of the resources we have. If they're, if they're on campus, I give them the email as to who they contact. And I encourage them to contact someone and get help because that's most important, in my opinion. And I've been there. Like, I've been a student, an international student twice, and I've taught abroad twice. I know it's a grind, and especially when it's in another, your second language, like it's a grind. And I remember what it was like trying to learn how to write in another language. And it's completely opposite to what you're used to. I understand all those things. Well-being is paramount anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm also interested in, you know, you mentioned like this sort of educational piece, like students saying in the comments, like, I still don't really understand what plagiarism is or I don't understand... How do you think we're doing on educating students about academic integrity and our expectations as an institution?
1: We reconnected recently at this year's TPC. Yeah. And I presented with uh, Jim Hugh. I just basically presented quantitative data, the number of plagiarism cases over the last uh, year. With regard to instruction, you know, I'm not in the classroom. I'm currently not teaching. So it's, I don't, I can't really comment to that. I would, you know, like to think uh, instructors are doing their due diligence, and they're giving students ample opportunities to practice, and they're giving them feedback, you have to trust that faculty members are doing the right thing. And faculty members probably have their own uh, introduction to academic integrity at the beginning of the semester. And I mean, the Writing Center put out an excellent video that has to do with uh, academic integrity. I'm in the process of making some extra resources to add more awareness. And one currently I was working on this morning was an updated awareness on... Contract cheating, and I believe that's how we first met because you had presented.
0: Oh, the Academic Integrity
1: Symposium? Right, back in, 20, in June of 2021. I heard that and I was like, she's a T. Are you? Oh, I'm going to reach out. And I'd first started the job, and I said, oh, I'm going to reach out and have a little conversation with Brenna. And uh, it was rather eye opening. I think instructors are doing a good job. and. I think the numbers that I presented with Jim indicate that. So over the last two years, since there was that huge spike during the pandemic, cases went down the next year by 50%, and then they went down again by another 50%. Okay. And when you compare that to the decrease in enrollment, which was only, I believe it was 6% and then 6%, to me, that tells me that faculty members are being more proactive and are doing something because awareness is only one piece. It's in the classroom when you can really impact students' awareness.
0: Well, yeah, because it's there are disciplinary norms, right, to how, how we do things, how we cite, how we make use of materials. And the only person who can teach that is the person who's also teaching the subject matter, right? Like students need to learn those two things in tandem. I think for the most part. One of the things that came up in the TPC with Sarah Eaton's keynote in particular was this idea of like an institutional, like a module that all students take or uh, things like that, that become sort of a more institutional response. Do you see that as necessary here? Or do you think that the, the sort of classroom-based approach that we tend to take at TRU, I mean, it sounds like from your data. It sounds like it, it's working.
1: Mm-hmm. And I haven't actually reached out to instructors to ask what they do at the beginning of the semester with their their students. I know that uh, some instructors do use that video that the Writing Center produced and it seems to work, which is great. I have read the literature with regard to online modules and the, one, the institutions that have implemented them and used them, they've documented that they are successful. I've also read literature that says a multifaceted approach is the best with regard to academic integrity awareness. And I do believe that. So I'm actually in, I thought, well, you know what, if we don't have it, why don't I just make one? So I'm in the process of making one, maybe it'll be unique. So what I'm going to do that's a little bit different is I'm actually going to use Joanne Archibald's story work principles with regard to indigenous stories. And I'm going to use those to relay ideas about academic integrity so for example the story of the coyote and the bone needle and the moral of that story you know the coyote's chasing his, he's looking for his bone needle around the fire and the owl comes down and says like what are you doing man and the coyote says well i'm looking for my bone needle and he's like the owl says did you lose it there and the coyote is like well i'm not sure but this is where the light is so he's like, "Well, maybe <laughs> you should like retrace your steps and like you could be out there So the moral is to, you know, expand your outlook with regard to where information is coming from, what's legitimate. And the more I read about, the more I started reading about academic integrity and the more I started reading about uh, Indigenous knowledge, colonialism has ripped off a lot of ideas and hasn't quite, you know, given the Indigenous community credit. Certain things like that. And then other things like, and then with regard to my idea for contract cheating, How to introduce that is, well, the trickster, Scalap. So I am in the process of finding stories that are relevant to sequemic culture and things like that. Because we do live here and it is important to recognize the the area that we live in. So
0: It's so fascinating because, you know, we talk a lot about attempts to to decolonize the practices of the university. But, you know, we talked off the top, right? Like the structure that we use for academic integrity, it's there's nothing much more colonial than like a court structure. And a lot of what we do with academic integrity sounds and looks a lot like a court structure. So it's really kind of fascinating to hear the ways in which story and story specific to this territory might be a way of having the conversation maybe in a different kind of way with students than we've than we've tried in the past.
1: As I do all this reading, and what's been great about since Cassie, our director, has started in my position in meetings ongoing in September, was I tell her, it's like, I'm a part of three academic integrity networks, and I read all the same literature that faculty members do just to keep current, just to understand what the the practices are, what the what everyone's kind of doing, that kind of thing. And she's been great at supporting. I'll say, hey, I the literature says this, and the practices of other universities are doing this. It's like, I'd like to try this. And she's been great at supporting that. You know, we, we
0: talk a lot about having, you know, research informed practices, right? And this is a, this is a classic example of a place where I think often faculty don't always realize that there is research, right? That academic integrity is, is a discipline, is an emerging discipline with a lot of research. So keeping on top of it, I think is really, uh, it's hugely valuable even just to communicate that that idea back into the community, right? That this is actually like, this is a process that we can research and we can come up with better practices. We don't have to make it all up from scratch
1: part of what I've been doing is to make sure that I understand, as I said, what other universities are doing. Because I mean, the literature oftentimes argues for a, a unified culture, either across campuses or things like that. The only thing is that's, I'm not saying it's difficult to cross campus.
0: Yeah, though, I'll it say it be. is. We're siloed
1: <laughs> as heck a lot of the time, right?
0: Like, we have our ways of doing things. And integrating that is, I mean, that's really hard. Like, we haven't managed it in all kinds of different ways, writing instruction, like there's all kinds of sort of basic skills development that we still don't particularly integrate. So I'm not surprised if you're suggesting or alluding that it's hard in academic
1: integrity too, you know? But not even including uh, whether or not the students have the skills necessary to succeed. If you think of like back to your comment, how academic integrity is a relatively new discipline, and it is, and more institutions are kind of, they're creating offices catered to that, positions catered to that. Because it's kind of new, you're going to have all these faculty members exchanging strategies, and I think that's great. You're obviously, with regard to these strategies and instructional practices, you're going to naturally have a difference of opinion. I mean, when I taught, I didn't always agree with my grade team partners when we were doing a unit on whatever it was. But you have to trust that everyone's in it for the right reasons. And like I said, the numbers have shown drastic decreases. So I'm assuming that I can only assume that they are doing, you know, a good job.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that your position has been made ongoing. Um I think Me I think too. i think it's a really critical role and you know in the first season of the show stephanie tate was in the learning strategist role for academic integrity and i had her on the show to talk about it And, and one of the things we were talking about is this need to sort of institutionalize some of the processes and some of the support so that students can learn where things are right because you know when a position gets discontinued and then goes unfilled for a while and then it's Back, but it's not a full time position. And right, like that, it becomes hard for anybody to know that the position is there and able to rely on. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. Maybe when Stephanie was here, one of the questions I asked her is if you could communicate anything to faculty about. Academic integrity about the process here at TRU. Anything like if there was one piece that you think is being sort of misunderstood, what would it be? So I'm going to ask you that. I don't. I have to say I didn't look it up before the show today. I should have found out what her answer was, and then we could have compared notes. I didn't. That would have been clever. Um, but I'm curious if there's a piece, like if there's something that you just really wish was better communicated to faculty about the process of academic integrity violation?
1: So I guess the one thing, and I'm in the process of creating more resources with regard to the subject, is if faculty members could tell their students, like, certain nuances about the policy and the process that aren't explicit in the policy that might, I don't want to say give them a scared straight approach to not getting into academic dishonesty. But if they could convey some of that information, that would be great.
0: What are you thinking of specifically?
1: Mm, okay. So I guess in the the policy, you look at regulation three, for example, due process, those eight principles are a student's rights with regard to the adjudication process. Seven of them are pretty straightforward. Students have the right to a fair process and the participants being initially informed of that process, that's when they get the case report form. And all the steps that are in place, like steps one, two, three, and four, and like I said, I give a student an infographic that goes through the steps, that's pretty much laid out. The one that has the most amount of, I don't want to say ambiguity, but the one that causes the most amount of discussion is principle six. And it basically says the right to an expedient adjudication to normally take place within 60 days of the commencement of the case. So here's the what's up for, I guess, debate, for lack of a better word, is there are two dates on a case report form. There's the date when the student receives it. And then there's the date that we stamp it when we receive it for step six, adjudication to normally take place within 60 days. Of which date? Of which date? Hmm. There are so- some instructors that have asked me to come into their classes and present. And when I present students, they've had me back because they have admitted that it seems to the information that I present seems to have resonated because I don't present about how to cite or how to paraphrase. That's not my job. I present information like this. And then let's just say it's your last semester and it's your last course, last assignment, and you have a case filed against you. And you have a job waiting and you need official transcripts to give them. But guess what? We can't issue official transcripts until this is adjudicated. So that causes further delay and further stress. It can delay work permits. It can delay study visas, graduation, As I mentioned, the official transcripts and this causes a backlog and they don't quite understand that. So that's the information that when I present, I kind of point out uh, things like things like that. And then the subtle nuances of, uh, for example, like contract cheating, for example, and I believe we had this conversation when we first met, they leverage students for, oh, yeah. for more money and they don't realize that. And I actually have copy and pasted communication that I have had with contract cheaters because they're throwing students under the bus. They will reach out at AIC, at tru.ca and say, hey, I have evidence this this student cheated. And then they just unload everything. I've actually responded to the contract cheater and basically said so let me get this straight are you a contract cheater and they responded admitting that they were and basically said that well you don't understand that you know in my country we have we have to make ends meet in different ways and i'm sitting here thinking like so you're going to exploit students what
0: what do you do with those emails when you get them?
1: There's nothing I can do other than get them to admit because they'll also send the email to their instructor and then their instructor will begin going through their files in order to file a case, and then they the student will have uh, will have an allegation.
0: My, I find the blackmailing part of the whole thing so um, it's an indicator of what big business it is, and I don't think all faculty are aware of just how much money is changing hands in the contract. Cheating
1: game. There's so much literature out there. I think they do know how much they're worth. I mean, it's no it's secret that, you know, shares for Chegg are 26 bucks each. <laughs> yeah. Now they're lamenting that ChatGPT has taken money out of their pockets. Yeah, Crimea River.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like in being upset about contract cheating in the first place. You know, it's like, man, you guys are all just. <laughs> It's it's this arms race. We end up in these arms races that we can't possibly win and I just think
1: about, you know, fantastic analogy. I'm actually right now watching Narcos Mexico and that is a perfect analogy. You have like the DEA, that's basically instructors and, you know, the academic integrity committee and all that stuff. Once they find out about something, well you're already two steps behind. Totally. Now that they know you're onto them, well, guess what? Now they're figuring something else out.
0: This is exactly it, right? And you know, we've already seen like that. There's the ChatGPT detector out there, and it's it's got an absolutely abysmal accuracy rate. And we can't technology our way out of these uh, problems, and yet we end up in this situation where you know you you were talking before about the kinds of solutions that work, right? Different assessment practices and things. We can't scale those for the size of classes and the number of students folks have to handle. So we really are kind of in this, uh, we're, we're in this, we're kind of trapped. <laughs> it's it's going to yes, be interesting it's, it's, to see where we go next.
1: It is a, a bit of a pickle. Josh Sealand out of uh, Assiniboine College and Brenda Stays out of the University of Manitoba, they're, in my opinion, frontrunners with regard to research on file sharing. And Josh actually tries a lot of these applications out and he relays what they do and what they're like to a lot of faculty members. And and from my understanding, I haven't used chat GPT. Funny thing, though. I reached out to some of my former colleagues in Ontario that are still teaching elementary school. And they said, like, yeah, I got I to be honest, man, I'm using it to make lessons because what used to take us two hours now takes us two minutes.
0: Well, and this is the thing, right, that I think in particular writing instructors need to wrestle with. But But everyone, like the ubiquity of these kinds of tools and the fact that it's going to be packaged with Office 365, like shortly, means that, you know, part of teaching students to engage with the world (laughs) is going to involve Mm -hmm. like these kinds of tools and how to use them responsibly, right? I worry that we're going to treat it like Wikipedia. Like remember the first like 10 years that Wikipedia was around and everybody was just like, oh, don't use Wikipedia, which was just such an it was an unhelpful thing to say instead of teaching students like okay well here's where the citation list is for wikipedia like what if you start there and go check out these
1: sources and see if they're reputable right so on monday during academic integrity hour the question asked around this is is it the, is chat gpt the same as contract cheating or is it a tool there's no black and white right there's a difference of opinion so some are trying to figure out ways how they can incorporate it as a tool and others are just they don't believe that it is and i understand that and some faculty members have said. I mean, it was the same when the calculator came out. Oh my, this is the decline of Western civilization. The calculator is going to cause so many problems when it's just a tool. That's essentially it. So anyway, back to, that's what I would do is we would use Wikipedia and then we'd read the information and then we would mine the bibliography and then go and check that and then confirm as many times as possible as to what is accurate information and what's inaccurate information. And then when we did online searches, students use online Resources all the time,
0: more than anything else,
1: <laughs> probably. I would agree. And the seventh edition of the APA manual shows you how to cite YouTube and mm-hmm. TED Talks and Facebook. Generation Z and younger, forty percent of them now are not going Google for their initial search searches. They're going to Instagram and TikTok. That's disconcerting.
0: There's a lot of misinformation on TikTok, in particular. And, you don't say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> talking. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's wild to see the attractiveness of that. But also, you know, and I'm now keeping you way longer than I said I would. So I will promise I will wrap this up soon. But I was just reading a Cory Doctorow piece the other day where he was talking about like why people, young people in particular, don't turn to Google. And it's because, you know, the way Google has allowed um, like junk listings as promoted searches to proliferate means that like you know, you can't trust the first eight results you get from Google necessarily. And so it's interesting to see how different generations or different sort of tool users, depending, like, look for the solution to that problem, right? So, like, we're seeing some people turn to the Bing search engine with its its uh, AI power and, and looking at that, we're seeing some folks turning to, yeah, obviously TikTok, which frightens me. You can't degrade tools forever, right? Like eventually people go seek out other tools and um, the quality is just not there. So I think it is a huge concern going forward as we we try to mop up this misinformation mess. I'm not
1: sure we can at this point. Like I wonder, I don't know if this happens with uh, faculty members. I know some do. I I don't know if all do, but I wonder if they're having candid conversations with their students. And I know this can happen on campus more so than it can in open learning, but are they actually having open conversations about chat GPT? Like, are you talking about the elephant in the room or are you just trying to avoid it? Because from my understanding, it's designed to have a conversation with you. And when it doesn't know something, it kind of makes something up. Yeah, it does. Right. So, could you maybe just off the top of my head use that as like a graphic organizer map some ideas now go and find information that corroborates these thoughts and if you can't then don't use it just an again that's just off the top of my head but
0: yeah no i do i think there's i think there's a lot of conversation that needs to happen and i think oftentimes when we're scared of a tool we don't have those conversations I, you know to go back to our conversation about Contract cheating, like a lot of that labor is ex- exploited, low cost labor from English educated countries in the global south, right? So Kenya is a big place where we see a lot of contract cheating coming out of. And th- that's not where the companies are based, but that's where they outsource labor to, right? And the same is true of the back end of ChatGPT, of what makes ChatGPT answer things in a coherent way. That's largely on the back of like, an hour labor in the Global South. And so, you know, like there are actually really rich conversations to be had with students about these tools and the choices that they're making and the ethics of them. But when we leave it to students for the for that to happen in a vacuum, and instead their only engagement with it is when they're panicked at the 11th hour and looking for an out, that's not when good choices get made, right? Like, it's just not.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right.
0: I, I have now kept you much longer than I said I would. So if you have any parting thoughts you want to share with the community about, about your role or the outreach that you're doing or, you know, any, anything you want to leave the community with.
1: Um, we are in the, currently in the, I'm working with the communications team here in the Faculty of Student Development. And we are in the process of doing some social media initiatives with regard to information around academic integrity. And we're in the process of also updating the website, the modules. I mean, I, that's going to be my project over the summer.
0: And if folks need to get a hold of your office, what's the best way to do that?
1: You can contact me at aic at tru.ca.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today, Emilio.
1: My pleasure, Brenna. Thank you very much.
0: So that is it for season three, episode 13 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. And I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. I feel like I should also start saying that I'm on mastodon.social at Brenna C. Gray as well. In all three cases, that's Gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.trubox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. And it's really a tip to explore an opportunity for access in your own classes. That might be listening to a podcast or reading an article and seeing how it might apply, but it also might just be thinking through the kinds of barriers you've seen learners come up against in your course material and thinking about how to address them in future iterations of your course. I know it's hard to do that critical reflective practice when you're in the middle of the semester, and so for those of you who are teaching right now, like I do get it, but I also think those reflections are often more valuable when they come in the moment. So think about it, and we'll keep talking about access in this space, And I'll see you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.